sometimes called the Enlightenment, or perhaps more accurately labeled, the Age of Reason, the 1600s and 1700s. Uh, in the first talk, we explored the birth of the modern mind, a way of making sense of the world where reason, logic, and being rational was considered highest and foremost. For the pre-modern mind, that which is spiritual has authority and the material only relevance insofar as it points to the spiritual. The modern mind, that which is material, uh, that which is logical, has authority. And indeed, according to the modern mindset, anything spiritual, anything so-called supernatural, well, that smacks of superstitious nonsense. That was the first talk. In the second talk, we explored the birth of evangelicalism, a social, cultural, and religious movement based upon a spiritual phenomenon. We saw how this movement spread from Germany to England to the North American colonies. And we considered its two chief priorities, conversion experience and small groups. Last week, the third talk, we looked at the rise of denominations and saw how evangelicalism in North America, the, the Great Awakening revivals in the American colonies, how, how that gave rise, in turn, to three contemporary phenomena with which we are all familiar, uh, them being the existence of multiple denominations. Also, freedom of religion as a cultural value of modern societies, and the so-called separation of church and state as a social and political ideal. We looked at how that emerged last week. This week, I would like to talk about the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire. That is to say, to look at the abolitionist movement in England in the late 1700s and early 1800s as an example of another of evangelicalism's key characteristics, which is its willingness to roll up its sleeves and tackle the social issues and challenges that no one else will touch. Well, after America was um, dis discovered by Europeans and colonized by Europeans in the 1500s and 1600s, both Europe and the American colonies became extremely rich by way of using slave labor. England was a manufacturing base. Uh, it made things in factories like cloth and rope and wooden articles and metal articles like guns, as well as rum. Uh, America, uh, together with the, the West Indies, was an agricultural base. It grew things like sugar, corn, cotton, tobacco. These crops used and needed a lot of land, which England did not have. And it needed a lot of labor. It is hard, back-breaking work to pick cotton heads from cotton plants to make cotton the fabric. Really hard work. So Africa was a resource base. It had the one thing the American colonies needed, cheap 
labor, and lots of it. American slavery involved African slaves being transported by ship to the American and Caribbean colonies from Africa. These people were often Africans captured by Africans, um, Africans who perhaps belonged to other tribes, uh, and during times of war in particular, they were captured, sold to the Europeans as a way of purchasing the goods that they wanted, like rum and cloth and guns. And so the slave trade was part of what historians call triangular trade routes, in which ships went round and around and around the three sides of a triangle, making more and more money for their owners and for their countries with each voyage and with each completion of this three-part expedition. But there were many ingredients in this particular cocktail that made it really, really toxic. And perhaps the worst thing about the North American slavery thing was the most obvious thing. And that is that all the slaves were black Africans. And all the slave owners were white Caucasians of European or English extraction. North American slavery, in contrast to ancient slavery, was institutionalized racism of an extraordinary scale and of a most vicious and extreme kind. A racism based upon, as all racism is, a deeply held belief in the racial superiority of one ethnicity over another. Um, I won't today. I won't today details the horrors and detail the horrors and cruelties of the Atlantic slave trade, nor of the North American slavery. Most of us know enough about that already, and those who don't will do so soon enough. Uh, my talk also today is not about the abolition of slavery. That's an American story, another story, a good story, but a story for another day. One well worth telling, but not our concern for today. Our focus will be on the abolition, not of slavery, but of the slave trade. You, you see, William Wilberforce, whom, whom I will introduce to you in a moment, and his abolitionist friends were not trying to abolish slavery. Slavery did not exist in England, nor in France, nor in many other countries, not for centuries. You couldn't own a slave in England, uh, nor in France. Um, and those who tried often found themselves on the wrong end of court orders. This wasn't about the abolition of slavery. That was a fight fought in North America. This was about the abolition of the slave trade, a participation in something that the English already knew stood against their common law and their collective conscience. But they, they knew it was wrong, but they turned a blind eye to it. They knew it was against their laws and the vibe of their laws, but they turned a blind eye to it because, well, it was all going on so awfully far away and it was, after all, making them exceedingly rich. That's why they turned a blind eye. But if you want to get a glimpse into the conflicted British conscience of that time, two really good films to see are Belle, 
and Mansfield Park. I'm talking about the 1999 version of Mansfield Park starring Perth's own Francis O'Connor and definitely not the 2007 version starring Billy Piper. And I'm talking about the 2013 Bell, uh, not the 2021 Bell, a film about which I've got no idea what that's about at all. Uh, so if you're just Googling these films, you know, be careful of um, similarly named films, identically named films. But they're, they're two really good films to see, to understand how the British were, 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 were struggling with this, even at the time. And so, when it comes to ending the slave trade, the, uh, the abolitionist movement, one name is remembered above all others, William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was born in England in 1759, aged zero. <laughs> Growing up, he was a small boy who was small for his age, very, very small, and he had very bad eyesight. He uh, was often um, sick. Um, however, he was very, very intelligent with a lively sense of humor. And throughout his life, William made friends easily, and people were always delighted with his witty sense of humor and fine singing. As an adult, he was once described by a leading London socialite as the wittiest man in England. And it was rumored that the Prince of Wales would go anywhere to hear him sing. As a boy, he was influenced greatly by an uncle and an aunt who were enthusiastic followers of Jesus. They were Methodists. They were evangelicals. William was inspired by their faith. However, William's parents were worried about William getting too religious. And so they separated him from them. As I explained a couple of weeks ago, evangelical Christians were, were, were usually regarded with great suspicion and with contempt and ridicule. They were, they were thought to be people who'd become infected with enthusiasm. By the time William was 17, he was a rich young man. Both his uncle and his grandfather had died, leaving him a large sum of money. He'd be an independently wealthy man for the rest of his life. He didn't have to work for a living, but by age 21, he'd entered politics as an independent member of parliament in the British House of Commons. And at this time, he loved going to parties, and he loved gambling clubs and playing cards for money, and he loved drinking. But in 1784, at the age of 25, William had a conversion experience. He decided to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and gave his life to him. He started getting up early in the morning to read his Bible and pray. He gave up gambling, drinking, and wild partying. Although he remained uh, cheerful and popular, he was now more interested in making the world a better place for everybody and also in encouraging others to follow Jesus too. William considered how best to serve God, and he thought perhaps he ought to become a priest or withdraw from public life, a life of meditation and prayer. However, his, his friends and, and his Christian friends 
encouraged him to stay in politics, where they felt God had called him. God had, God had a purpose for him there, to make a substantial difference in the world through politics. One of his friends was a man named John Newton, uh, who has an amazing story. And we're going to sing one of his songs later on. Today, uh, he's actually remembered pretty much only just for one song that he wrote, um, but he had an amazing life, and that song is Amazing Grace. Well, uh, Wilberforce sensed a call from God, and writing in his diary in 1787, he wrote that God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. The Slave Trade Act, making, slave trade, making the slave trade illegal throughout the British Empire, was passed on the 25th of March, 1807. It passed by 283 votes to 16. In other words, it was a landslide, an overwhelming victory, the abolition of the slave trade. However, that victory was very hard won by way of a 20-year-long campaign. And to begin with, Wilberforce's efforts at legislative reform were defeated by similar margins. Slavery, the, the bill to abolish it, defeated by overwhelming margins to begin with. Overwhelmingly, the British parliamentarians were passionately against abolition, and the British general public, probably in general, cared very little one way or the other, mostly. Why, why was that? Why did they care so little or indeed demand that the slave trade stay? Well, first and foremost, Great Britain was the richest nation on earth and the most powerful sea-going nation on earth. And the slave trade was a very, very important part of that. Many, if not most, of the MPs in the House of Commons or lords or even bishops in the House of Lords, they would have had commercial interests of one sort or another. Perhaps they owned plantations in the West Indies or they owned uh, ships doing those commercial shipping routes. Or perhaps they were involved in ports or trades or factories at home that depended upon cheap produce from the colonies. Any MP representing a port city or a manufacturing city, such as Liverpool, Manchester, Bristol, Birmingham, Southampton, etc., etc., it just would have been—they just would have been playing courting political suicide to advocate an end to the slave trade. That's the first reason: money. But it's not all just about money. The second reason is that England was by now hard-bitten by some of the most addictive substances ever to be discovered by humankind. Nicotine, tobacco, sugar, not to mention tea and coffee. Nicotine, caffeine, sucrose. I know I'm probably describing some people's favorite breakfast, but <laughs> they're all incredibly addictive. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, not to mention the fact that they were all cheap, that, that they're really, really dirt cheap, slave labor. In, in America, there was a war of independence, 
and a revolution against the British monarchy. In France, there was revolution and a public um, a declaration of a republic and Napoleon and the reign of terror, all under the banner of, of liberté, equality, fraternité, ajoudouise, très, très, très. It was a bloodbath. To be talking about such things in England, to be talking about the equality of human beings when every Englishman in his right mind knew that the good ordering of society depended upon a natural hierarchy and every person knowing his station in life. This all smacked of revolution, sedition, treason, even, dare I say it, republicanism. Petitions? The general public signing petitions? What might eventuate if commoners thought that they had the prerogative to tell their rulers what to do? It's outrageous. Heaven forbid. So how did William Wilberforce and his friends persuade the British Parliament and the British people to change their minds, or rather to actually listen to their conscience and do what they knew was right? Well, a very enjoyable way of learning how they did all that is simply to watch uh, the film Amazing uh, Grace, um, starring um, um, Ewan, I think it's, I don't know how to pronounce his first name, or indeed his second name, but there it is. <laughs> it's a great film to watch if you want to understand more about this. Um, how did they do it? Well, very, very briefly, it was like this. They, firstly, they did their research. They did painstaking fact-finding and collecting of data. And, and the man responsible for all of this stuff, his name was Thomas Clarkson. They did their homework. Secondly, they lobbied those in power. They wrote letters. Uh, they also wrote pamphlets. They had them printed and distributed. One of the most famous pamphlets, Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade, was written by John Newton. Uh, they held public meetings with guest speakers, visiting speakers who knew their stuff. They made press releases. They did book launches with famous authors, particularly ex-slaves, who became famous by writing their own stories. Olalda Equiano was one of them, but there were others. They organized boycotts of products and companies that were not free trade. People stopped putting sugar in their tea, which was an extraordinary act. Tea in those days without sugar was soup. Um, if you didn't put sugar in your tea, that invited inquiry. And they came up with slogans and logos, and they distributed these by way of badges and medallions. The famous Wedgwood Company produced a beautiful and evocative medallion featuring a kneeling black African slave in chains with the words, Am I not a man and a brother? inscribed around him. Um, they had T-shirts printed, or at least they would have had T-shirts been invented. They petitioned Parliament and they collected several hundred thousand signatures. The point is, 
When it comes to inventing the means by which organizations seek to change public opinion, they wrote the book. They were the first. They invented the mechanisms of Christian public activism. They were the first. This was the world's first grassroots human rights campaign. So if you've done any of those things in support of any other human rights campaign or, 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 or activism, these, these are the guys who invented it for you, how to do it. In all of this, Wilberforce had support, a lot of support. In fact, he wasn't the prime mover. There were many involved, but he was their chosen spokesperson. And the abolitionist movement was actually just one manifestation of the activities of a group called, somewhat mysteriously, the Clapham Sect. The Clapham Sect was a somewhat famous group of evangelical Anglicans uh, who worshipped at Holy Trinity Church, Clapham Common, a village that at that time was just south of London, but today is part of southwest London. Anyone been to this church? Yep, fantastic. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so you've been to Clapham. You live there. That's great. We've got members of the Clapham sect. Um, these, uh, these Clapham evangelical Anglican Christians, they were a group of affluent, actually, and influential people who bought large houses surrounded by gardens, gardens with no fences. So they were always walking freely in and out of each other's houses and holding meetings and discussing the affairs of the day and having prayer meetings and working out what they would do. This was a, a new way of life. It was a new way of life that was not town living, nor was it village living, nor country living. It was part of a brave new experiment into a, a brand new way of living, a way of living that today we would call a suburb. They were doers as well, and they were responsible, often with William Wilberforce as chief architect and spokesperson, for, for much reform and change and for founding a lot of societies, societies such as the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or the RSPCA, the British and Foreign Bible Society, today, here, Bible Society Australia, and the Church Missionary Society, here and today, CMSWA. Uh, you, like me, might be a supporter or even a member of one or perhaps even all of these societies. And in the light of such zealous reformation, in the light of this group of Christians wanting to reform British manners, in other words, to overhaul how people treated other people in public and private life, that's what that means. In the light of this Reformation zeal, I'm going to ask a question that is important for our purposes here today, but perhaps not entirely obvious. And that question is, why did these reformers want to abolish the slave trade and not reform it? Why not reform the slave trade? If you think about it, it's entirely conceivable that the English-speaking world would, would, could have continued to have had slavery, but rather to reform it by way of 
drafting rafts of legislation that would make it a matter of law that slave masters and slaves treated each other with dignity and respect. Why not reform slavery? That's what, that's what, that's what Moses is talking about there in Deuteronomy. That's what Paul is talking about there in Colossians. Not abolition, but reform. Why weren't they reformers? Why were they abolitionists when it came to the slave trade? If slavery is cruel and racist, then you legislate to make it not cruel and racist. The need for reformation was obviously absolutely obvious. That the abolitionists wanted to abolish, though, that's something to explain. William Wilberforce put his utter intolerance and abhorrence of the slave trade down to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. That God, first of all, at the beginning, made all humankind in his image and likeness. But his take on that was that, therefore, on the basis of Genesis 1, verse 26, it is morally wrong for any human being to own another human being. That was his take on it. It is morally wrong that any human being might own another human being in the same manner that a human being might own a cow or a donkey or a chicken or a duck. But when we think of that, that's obvious to us, isn't it? That's probably obvious to everyone in this room. That doesn't need any explanation or, 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 um, uh, or defense. We all get that. Only... It's not a conclusion that any of the authors of Holy Scripture made. None of, them, uh, none of them made that conclusion on the basis of that verse. It's not in Scripture anywhere. They moved to reform slavery, to be sure. Um, uh, that is, the authors of Holy Scripture. But not to abolish it. I suspect, therefore, and this is a suspicion, I suspect that William Wilberforce's reading of Genesis was actually a mixture of his Christian conscience and modern sensibilities. Um, and to explain what I mean, what does it mean to mix a Christian conscience with modern sensibilities? Well, perhaps we could just very briefly look at another really fascinating mixture of Christian conscience working together with modern sensibilities, and that is the American Declaration of Independence. The American Declaration of Independence, their official document telling mad King George III in particular, and the British public in general, to get lost begins with these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of those governed. Well, that's really interesting, but there's a whole explosion of questions. To whom exactly are these truths self-evident? 
To whom are they self-evident? And where did they get this language of equality and rights from? Where did that come from? And how did they come to the conclusion? How did they come to the conclusion, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, how did they come to the conclusion that all human beings are created equal? Well, actually, much of this is good, plain, Scottish, common sense, enlightenment philosophy. If it's obvious, it's obvious. It doesn't matter what those French philosophers say, they don't know what they're talking about. Good, plain, common sense, Scottish Enlightenment philosophy. Human beings have rights. Because it's obvious. To the modern mind. But the American Declaration of Independence mixes the language of Scottish Enlightenment philosophy, equality, rights, self-evident truths. It mixes that language with language of the Bible, Christian thought and conscience. Created, that's Bible language. Creator, that's Christian thought. It's an interesting mix, isn't it? Um, the, the Bible never comes close to saying that all human beings are created equal. Um, in, indeed, the Bible seems to affirm in many and diverse places and ways that human beings are not equal, that no two human beings are equal. Not equal in birth or opportunity or giftedness or number of talents given. Not equal in what is required or expected. Not equal um, in terms of each person's lot in life or station in life. That's, that's unique. Some are poor. Some are kings. Most are somewhere in between. Some die before birth. Others live to very ancient age. And most people go through life with their station in life Fixed. Yet and nevertheless, all human beings, Scripture says, all human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, and therefore, the whole Bible compels us to look afresh at each other, to look afresh at each and every other human being, and to see them in a way that otherwise we would never even dare think or imagine that this person represents God. Do unto others, therefore, as you would have them do to you. And whatever you did, says the Son of Man, whatever you did or did not do to, to, to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did not do or you did do for me, says the Son of Man. And Furthermore, the principal metaphor for understanding salvation, the, the big picture for understanding what salvation is in both Testaments is freedom from slavery. In such ways, evangelicalism comes to a conclusion that the authors of Holy Scripture did not themselves ever actually make. Slavery as an institution in which human beings are bought and sold by other human beings, has to go as something completely unfit for the modern world. Uh, thus my point. Evangelicalism is a social, cultural, and religious movement based upon a spiritual phenomenon. It is a product of the modern mind as well as an outpouring, a product of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
But it is based upon a spiritual phenomenon. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God upon all believers in Jesus Christ. And whenever the Spirit fills human beings, those human beings suddenly find themselves inspired, like William Wilberforce, by two great objects in life. The preaching of the gospel and the helping of the poor. Evangelicalism as a spiritual phenomenon gives testimony to its own spiritual authenticity by spontaneously committing itself to preaching the gospel and immediately rolling up its sleeves and doing something about those social ills that no one else will touch or dare get involved. Uh, This is universally seen in the saints in the Bible, perhaps most shockingly in Samson and most perfectly in Jesus. In this series, I've only given one example of evangelicalism at work, the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire, but there are any number of other examples, any number. That's that's, that's how evangelicalism behaves as a group. Um, But when it comes to individual Christians... I would also, we would also expect to see these same twin concerns. The move of the Holy Spirit in an individual's life, suddenly a desire to see other people come to faith in Jesus Christ, together with a desire to help the poor and make the world a better place for everyone. Perhaps those two desires in each individual Christian are not always in equal measure. They don't have to be. Perhaps one might be really passionate about preaching the gospel, but also likes remembering the poor. Perhaps another person's life is based upon helping the poor. But they want to see other people come to faith in Jesus too. But depending on the ratio, it doesn't matter the ratio. What matters is that they're both there to some extent. And these are flames given to us, Holy Spirit flames, given to us by God our Father. And as with any flame... It needs to be carefully tended and occasionally gently blown on to flame it back into into a blaze. So therefore, actually in the light of these things, perhaps we uh, might consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing so, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. And the Lord be with you.